Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is a podcast for Killer Whales. I'm Allison Morrow, your host, and this is the podcast that talks all about the Southern resident killer whales, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. Today we have Josh McGinnis. He's a marine biologist with the University of Victoria in Victoria, British Columbia, and also research coordinator for marine life studies in Monterey Bay, California. So, Josh, thanks for uh, being on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me, and looking forward to having a chat with you. So you have an interesting background. You study killer whales. You study transient killer whales. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about the southern resident killer whales. That's what this podcast is about. But it sounds like there are a lot of lessons learned from the research that you've conducted already and that your peers have conducted. So can you give us a brief background on what you've been doing over the last few years when it comes to the whales you're focusing on? Yeah, so in 2010, we started um, documenting and keeping track of the, the transient killer whale population. Um, so they're a, a different ecotype of killer whale to the southern residents, um, and they are actually marine mammal foraging specialists. So what we do is we've been keeping track of sightings. We also go in the water and we uh, conduct research where we're, we're you know, observing them, taking photos of them, keeping track of the calves being born, uh, predation on different animal species, as well as looking at new pods that are visiting the area. And... Um, one of the things we're doing right now is also comparing different regions. So looking at areas like Monterey Bay, um, is where our actual field season are now conducted. We were initially doing work in off of Vancouver Island, and and um, now we're kind of you know branching out along the coast to try to you know see if we can unlock some of the answers to you know what the transient community has been doing, especially with the increase in the population and the occurrence and distribution patterns that we've been seeing in the last um, last ten years. So far, what are you guys coming up with? What's been different for them? Well, you know, we're seeing more uh, individuals using the area. So, you know, there, there's more groups spending more time in the area, especially if you hear um, areas in Puget Sound. People have been reporting more and more sightings of the transient killer whales there. Um, you know, we're seeing new individuals visiting the area, too, as well. Sometimes some pods that have never been sighted uh, in the Salish Sea have actually been making their way in here. And some of these are actually... Uh, Part of the community we study in Monterey. Um, these are some of the killer whales that we cite. We, we, we actually study in Monterey uh, during the springtime. Um, and some of these animals have different foraging behavior. Even though they're transient or marine mammal hunters, they um, specialize in hunting gray whales or sea lions. And um, you know, compared to the community up here in the Salish Sea, which forage and harbor seals and spend most of their time up here, so we're seeing intermixing of them, the, of the two little the sub communities of, of transient. And I think this is, you know, very fascinating. Um, we've also, you know, document new behavior. Uh, one of those being, you know, like we've had interesting interactions with uh, a group of killers that have actually used intentional stranding, which is they'll actually go up onto, you know, into shallow water, almost onto beaches, grab seals. So we, we actually, you know, we've been looking at these new behaviors that have been used by different groups in the SAOC, and, and then we're starting to see some new, new, new and interesting things. Would it be fair to say that, it seems like anyway right now that for most of the transient killer whales, time's pretty good right now, that the life is pretty good for them. Yeah, they're doing quite well. Um, you know, they, yeah, they've increased to probably close to about 340 animals now. Um, there's been lots of new cats born um, that we've documented quite a few. Um, you know, they, they have a, a, a large amount of food available to them as well. Um, harbor seal populations have now grown. Uh, since the 1970s and 60s when they were, you know, being called. And now they're back up to what might be a, a normal population level. 
And that means that there's lots of food for them. Um, and also, as well, there's harbor porpoise in the area. You know, we're seeing a healthy Salish Sea with humpbacks coming back and gray whales. So the transients have full options um, for food, as well as, you know, even seeing this immigration of new animals and new, new transients area means there's more chances for them to socialize and also uh, spread the gene pool. I mean, that gives them plenty of opportunity now. So when it comes to doing well transients are definitely on the up and up um, in comparison to their fish eating cousins so for people who may not be familiar with the difference what makes a transient killer whale a transient killer whale and what makes a southern resident killer whale a southern resident killer whale what's the difference well that's actually a really good question um both of them look very similar to the untrained eye um they both have the black and white coloration um, they, you know, but there is a there is some major differences too. Um, they have completely different lifestyles. I mean, residents living in large social groups like J pod, K pod, and L pod, which are, you know, up to about 25 to 45 whales in each pod uh, for residents, and and then transients live in these small little social groups. Um, I I prefer to call them groups instead of pods because they don't have the long term family uh, groupings like the residents. They are small match lines of a mother and subsequent offspring and barely ever go past two generations now the biggest difference is is their diet so being fish eaters them and transients being mammal eaters they have evolved different traditions and different foraging methods which then shapes their entire lifestyles so transients being stealthy hunters that um, usually hug the shoreline and do long dives and often are quiet they don't vocalize a lot like residents do that's the whole area that shapes their ecology when they're looking for marine mammal prey, where residents, on the other hand, are very vocal, and they're often these big family groups looking for salmon, and um, you can and fish don't have the the ability really to pick up resident acoustics, so killer residents can be very vocal, and, and that those are, these are two, and that right there shows two different evolutionary paths when it comes to um, their behavior and their biology, which shapes, which shapes their entire lives, so they're definitely almost, I would say, almost a different species. It's really interesting hearing you talk about them. And in, in, in past conversations, you've used the word xenophobic with the southern resident killer whales, which I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, we, we still don't understand why residents and transients and the other type of killer whale off the coast here called the offshores don't intermingle. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's one of those things where, yeah, xenophobia is a term we give um, where an, an organism or uh, a person is afraid of something that they don't understand, or it's 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 something that they you know they're, they're not their behaviors are enough to shape their their entire lifestyle. So xenophobia for a killer whale like that, residents might not they might have the choice to not want to associate with resident uh, with transients, and. That alone can, over time, especially if you have these behaviors that you've adapted to your specialized prey, can cause reproductive isolation. And that alone can then start to shape evolution. And most times, you know, most people think of animals being separated by a continent, meaning that they start to evolve into a new species. But social isolation in general, when they stop interbreeding, that right there is the starting point of uh, a, a new species being formed over time, if evolution decides. So I only really know enough about this to make myself dangerous, but uh, it seems like adapted behaviors for top predators or really whatever the species is, if if it is 
specialized in, say, a prey source in this case, wouldn't it seem like at some point that was a triumph in some way for them? In other words, it was a survival adaptation that benefited them, which now is not benefiting them. Do you know anything about that? I mean, was salmon at one point an evolutionary success for the southern resident killer whales, whereas now it may end up being their downfall? Well, you know, initially, yeah, they, I mean, it could have been an evolutionary success based on the fact that um, at the time when killer whales were in the area, um, competition for food, if you're eating the same food source, especially in a limited food source, um, you know, transients foraging on marine mammals and residents foraging on fish, they, what we call resource partitioning, they're able to actually split up the prey so that they can coexist within the same geographical area. Um, and that's that's a, a major triumph for a species because usually competition will cause another species to go extinct. One of the other things, though, that could be, you know, over time, especially if you become so adapted to a prey source, is the fact that your immunity to that prey pathogens become um, a hindrance. So, say, let's say the big question that I hear a lot is, why don't residents eat marine mammals? There's a couple of reasons why that could happen. One, um, the fact that, like I said before, there's special foraging specializations for specific prey, and you have to learn that over time, and learning new behaviors will take a lot of energy. But also the fact that um, a, a sea lion that carries different viruses or different bacteria that may be harmful um, to, to, trans, to residents can cause a, a mortality event that's not very good. So we're in transients, let's say. Transients have a built-in immunity to the pathogens that are probably within marine mammals. So a resident might not have that same immunity. So for that might be one big also evolutionary reason why we don't see the switching of prey, even though you think it would be so easy for them to do that. If folks are new to the strife of the southern resident killer whales, they are salmon eaters. Uh, Chinook salmon is one of their favorite foods. Chinook salmon are not doing so well right now. They're also protected by the Endangered Species Act. And so the race to try to save the southern resident killer whales is focused in large part on how to restore salmon to the ecosystem. In one part, that conversation has taken a journey toward contemplating a possible cull or hunt of seals and sea lions called, those are pinnipeds, if people don't know that term, pinnipeds, right? Seals and sea lions. And mm -hmm. uh, whether that should be considered because they compete for food with the Southern residents because they eat salmon. Recently, I was listening to a presentation by a few scientists who told the wildlife commissioners here in the state of Washington that it's only one to 2% of their diet salmon is for the pinnipeds, but it still could be a lot of salmon. Uh, but they also brought up that they don't know if there is a call, whether it would actually work. And you have concerns that it may end up having negative secondary or tertiary consequences. Do you mind talking a little bit about that, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so, you know, prior to, you know, I'll go back to, you know, the transients or prior to the 1950s, there were very few transient sightings within the Salish Sea. They were infrequent um, to the point where researchers would say that, you know, we, there are just outside groups coming in to visit. Now we're seeing such an increase in them. But around that same time, though, um, we were there were large harbor seal and stellar sea lion calls on the coast here by fisheries. And almost to the point where they decimated the population of harbor seals down to around 10,000 animals. 
um, approximately. And that alone could have been one of the major contributors to the lack of transient presence in the area. Um, when it comes to calling them, that's, you know, that's that, that fine thing of interrupting a food web. And one of the areas I really enjoy studying with, with food web ecology. And one of the big problems is that transients and residents may have co-evolved. Like we just talked about earlier, how there's resource partitioning, where transients may actually help the residents in the long run by controlling the marine mammal predators that may compete with residents. So what I mean by that is that harbor seals and resident killer whales eat the same prey so um, a lot of the time, so fish species in general. So even though that harbor seals may feed on salmon at one point, that is still a competition for residents as sea lions as well. Now, the transients then control the pinniped population, which is actually, what, yeah, like you said, a secondary benefit to the residents. So by calling the seals initially, you might have this short-term benefit, I would say, to the resident population. But long-term, the, res- the transients would then decrease. And then the harbor seal populations, well, the difference with pinnipeds and cetaceans, the big thing is the reproductive rates. So one thing you have to look at. So harbor seals have a much faster reproductive rate, which means they have more pups faster than, say, a killer whale would have calves. And if that happens, the transient population, say, decreases because we've decreased their food prey, their food sources, that means that the harbor seals will rebound faster. And now they'll start, if there, if there is a factor that harbor seals are actually hindering the, the, the resident, food, resident food sources like fish, then in the long run, transient is going to take a lot longer to rebound, which means harbor seals are going to, in the long term, will actually decrease the food source for the residents. It sounds like you're somewhat pessimistic about the southern resident killer whales and their future. Can you tell me why you feel like the future is so grim for them and why bother, I guess, with all of this uh, working towards some kind of resolution on all kinds of really complicated topics that are taking people just hours, days, years to find solutions to. I mean, if the the outlook is so grim for these whales, why bother? Well, for one, I think that a lot of the, the situation that you know we're in with the southern residents has occurred because of us um, as a species, humans. I think that you know, one of the reasons why they don't have food is the dams that we put up, um, the, the logging that's happened, um, especially in the British Columbia, you know, Vancouver Island area, you know, many of the salmon streams have basically gone extinct because of uh, cut logging. Um, uh, either they haven't been fa- uh, rehabilitated or restored. Um, also the fact that, they, you know, we have vessel traffic out there that's increased um, exponentially, especially with ports, uh, larger vessels. Um, you know, the increase in the whale watching in the area has become more and more of a concern. Um, and pollution, uh, you know, that's a new one. We created um, CETTs and PCBs, which are these fat-absorbing molecules. We created that. And these are a lot of, especially we don't really even understand what they do to the ecosystem yet. We don't even know what their long-term effects are on killer whales. So these are things that we've caused, which are all issues for the killer whales in general. So for what I'm saying is maybe, yes, a population like the residents, you know, if they decline naturally, as a species, because a lot of the species do go extinct. I mean, we have a whole fossil record of it. Um, but that is through natural causes that are part of part of life. But for residents, um, we don't know if they're naturally declining. Um, a lot of this is probably due to human interference. So if we can actually try to mitigate some of these 
um, problems that we have caused by maybe restoring a salmon stream or, you know, dec- uh, decreasing boat traffic. We might not save the southern residents, but we may save some sort of part of some sort of factor in the food web that may help uh, another species. I mean, there's all benefits from doing these things, even if it's not for the southern residents. Um, you know, in my mind, I hope that, you know, I do hope they re- return to, you know, larger numbers and that they do well. But, you know, in the long run, why would we not try to fix the problems that we've caused? It doesn't make any sense to me because it's just going to put benefit back into the ecosystem. As somebody who has studied the comeback of the transient population, do you think that it's too late for the southern residents, or could they have the same kind of success story? I think they could have, definitely have the same success story. I mean, you know, as long as this ecosystem doesn't, you know, I'm, this ecosystem changes for the better. I mean, uh, the other problem, I don't think what most people realize, is that there's competition with northern residents. I mean, that community is doing really well, um, and they're very similar in their uh, ecology to southern residents and the fact that they're fish-eating specialists as well, and they live in the same stable matrilineal groups. And that the northern residents, you know, if we don't, you know, they're going to, as their population increases, so will the range will increase. So we really don't know over time if those northern residents will move in more into the southern resident range if the southern residents become what is called displacement, or if they're displaced by um, the lack of food or, you know, displaced by northern residents. These are all very, very interesting questions that could happen. Like maybe one day if the southern residents were going to, to go extinct, would the northern residents take over the Salish Sea? Um, you know, like we, we really don't know. So for me, I'm, you know, we, we hope that we can have this ecosystem that be very similar, but it's going to take a lot to try to get things back to what we, we, we believe is normal because we really don't know what normal is. And, um, you know, as a species, we only started studying these whales in the last 40 years. So, I mean, 40 years on a geological time scale is so small. So I think that, you know, there's hope, but I think it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of people that are caring about these animals. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like for all of the commission meetings and task force meetings and conversations and legislation around the problems surrounding these whales, there sounds like there are a considerable amount of mysteries that are surrounding them as Mm -hmm. well. And so that you're sort of balancing that. And I don't think people necessarily know because we talk about these whales so often and we talk about them as if we know so much about them. But speaking with you, it really does sound like there's a lot of unknown about what's wrong with them and how to fix it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's many unknowns. I mean, why are humpbacks doing so well? You know, humpbacks were whales uh, in the early part of the century, in the uh, 20th century, and why are they coming back the way they are in the Salish Sea? If there's you know if there's a food web, must be doing something right. I mean, if we're getting large numbers of gray whales and humpbacks visiting again and coming back in these numbers, I mean, there's there is some positive outlook to our ecosystem. Um, the increase in transients, once again, that's another population as well as the benefits. I mean, that's all signs of a healthy ecosystem, uh, having all these species that are rebounding. But the unknown factors these residents are, I mean, is this just a natural decline we're seeing? I mean, are we just seeing natural mortality events happening? Because the chances are that we actually get to, you know, actually look at a dead specimen, say a, re- a, nor- a southern resident that washes up dead on the beach, is very, very, so there's a low probability of seeing those animals. And you know, are, you know, some of the ones that just disappear and we, we, we call that they're dead. I mean, did they die from a natural element like cancer? I mean, 
you think about these animals as large species, and we see a, a large carnivore that's a top predator in an ecosystem, you see them sick. We're not used to seeing sick animals. Sick animals get taken quickly in, in, in food webs, um, in food chains. They don't last long. So for us to actually see something, especially when we're following it like we are so passionately with killer whales, um, it, it, it seems unnatural. It seems upsetting to us, but these could just be normal, normal occurrences of, of mortality events happening. All I can say is I feel very lucky with the work that we're doing in, in Monterey and along the you know British Columbia coast here with seeing a change now in the transients. Um, one thing I got to admit is I'm we're, we're right now studying a, a, a an ecotype of killer whales that is changing. We're seeing new groups coming into the area, you know, and that have never been here before, and it's actually changed right in front of our eyes. Where and when it comes to life, uh, change is usually very slow and. It's, uh, it's nice to actually be there to witness this kind of, these interesting things and being able to study them is fantastic. All right, well, Josh, we appreciate your being on the podcast. Maybe we'll get to see some positive change with the southern resident killer whales. You can certainly hope that way. Uh, Josh McInnes, marine biologist with the University of Victoria and Victoria, British Columbia, also research coordinator for Marine Life Studies in Monterey Bay, California. Again, Josh McInnes, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Allison. I really appreciate you having me.